Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. If you could please take a moment to rate and review this show on whatever app or platform you're using, it would be so appreciated. And before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. We always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. That said, we're not going to be diving into anything super um, deep from like a medical perspective today. We have David Hurwitt here as our guest. And Dave, you are an inventor. Is that your official title? I will take it, Stacey. <laughs> Over the course of his career, he's led the development and launch of new products and services from toothpicks to wind turbines that have generated well over a billion dollars in sales. And when his three kids were going through college and their journeys, it started his little innovator brain cranking, having worked in admissions through grad school. He was amazed by how little technology and the internet had impacted the college search and admissions process and even more dismayed over how many students were transferring or dropping out altogether. And as the mom of four teenagers, one who had extreme anxiety and was overwhelmed by the entire college process, I'm curious to hear how technology might help and really overall how we can support the wellness of our transitioning youth and young adults as they embark on what is the first experience out of the house for so many of them. And both my husband and I have very different college stories. I am wearing my college uh, sweatshirt for those of you that are listening today. Um graduated from a public state university, but very untraditionally. We'll talk about that a little bit. And my husband, though he got a scholarship to college, ended up not graduating. And so I think it's interesting to consider how we develop a lot in college and what are those experiences that we have. For many of us, health issues pop up, traumas are experienced, and I think the right school and social match may help someone become their best self, leading to better health outcomes long term. So I'm curious to talk to you, David, about how technology might be able to help us do that. And if college as we know it is really even the future for Americans, this has really been a question I've had as I see my children coming into this experience and how very different their mindset is about all of this versus mine. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and more what brought you to have this be a passion? Sure. So as you said, I have three children who are no longer children. They are 25, 27, and almost 29. And I went through this process, this college admissions process with them. And maybe more broadly, I would say I went through the process of helping them to try to figure out as they graduated from high school, what's next? And I think that's the right context to think about this decision because we as Americans prescriptively say, well, the best thing you could do is go to college. 
And I just don't believe that to be true. I'm a big fan of college. I think it's really a great thing, but it's not right for everyone. And we have to stop making those for whom it's not the right choice feel lesser, right? And so that was in the back of my mind as I started this journey with my teenagers through this college search process. And as you said in your intro, I had worked in the college admissions offices of my undergraduate school. And then again, when I went back to business school, I worked in the admissions committee, which was actually pretty involved. In As an undergrad, I was giving tours, right? What did I know? I was 20. But then when I was 25, 26, I was on the admissions committee at a really great business school. I was reading applications. I really understood the process. Chose not to go into the career, but felt like I understood the mechanics of it pretty well. That I'm old enough where that was actually right around the beginning of the internet in the mid-90s. And I then went away for 20 years and came back with my first teenager and said, okay, let's go through this process. And I was expecting the internet to have had a really profound effect on that process, that, that there would be better information available for my daughter, for, for me as a parent, that, that her guidance counselor would know more, that the college admissions officers who were trying to assess her fit would know more. And what I found was an online transaction of the exact same broken, silly system of GPAs and SAT scores, and and you could get easier access to some stats about the size of a school, the location of a school, the weather of the school, the amenities of the school. But I used to find those in big, thick, big books, FISC guides, I think they were called. And I just started to think after having spent my career developing new products and services, as you said, from toothpicks to turbines, I developed front-loading washing machines for the US market, those kinds of things always thinking about how could we do this differently. And so I just started to objectively think about, okay, as we try to help our children make that first big adult decision about, okay, I, I get to choose now. What do I want to do? What's the path I want to chart for myself? What do I need to learn? How do I need to grow? Where do I need to be in order to achieve the kind of life that I'm starting to get a sense that I would like? And I looked at how that decision was being made, and I was just dismayed. And it really, I think it came to a head for me when my daughter and I went out on our first college tour. And I, admittedly, she had the privilege of two parents who had gone to college. She had a, a she went to a public high school, had a decent high school counselor. We hired her a private college counselor as well. And these are all privileged things. And then we took her on a college tour, again, a, a really nice benefit for her. But we drove about six hours to get to that first school. We pulled in. It was the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. And she said, oh, no, dad, dad, don't even get out of the car. Not going to happen. I said, look, at six hours. You're getting out of the car. We have to go take this tour, and then we'll talk about it. So we went and took the tour, and it was nice. It was informative. We got back in the car. The mood was a little dark. And I said, all right, tell you what. You jump on Spotify, and you choose the music that's going to cheer you up. And I'm going to jump on Yelp, and I'm going to find us a great restaurant that we're going to like, and we're going to go sit down, have dinner, talk about this, and just see where we are. And so sure enough, Spotify nailed the music. Yelp found us the perfect restaurant. And then we sat down and started talking about it. And it occurred to me that the matching technology of that music choice and that restaurant choice were profoundly better than this quarter million dollar decision about where she was going to go for higher education. And I started to put those pieces together and say, is there a way where modern technology can help to give her better, more useful information to support her in making a good choice where she will feel her greatest sense of comfort 
both in and out of the classroom as she journeys away from the nest. And so that was really the genesis for me. And she was my first child through this process. And I had bills to pay and 12 years of college to pay for three children, which turned into 13 years of which that happens. But by the time I had spent a few years with the others, my wife said, okay, listen, you've been talking about this need to fix this system. You talk about the ideas you have. You either need to do this now that your oldest, excuse me, your youngest is a senior in college, either need to, to, to do this or just shut up about it. All right. And so, so I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So I started a company that was really designed around how can we help our children make better decisions about building the, the life and starting the educational journey that will create the life that they're hoping for. And that's at the high level of what we're trying to do. And obviously you have to start tactically somewhere. You have to start with a specific version 1.0 of your product, but that was the mission. And that's what we have set about to do with True. It was interesting to me as I was thinking, because before we started the show, you actually said to me like, where do I fit into the show? And when I originally got your information selfishly as the mother of children who are going into college, I'm like, yeah, I want to talk about this. I want to learn about it. But also it occurred to me how incredibly powerful those years are for developing into the people we are. And I love that you also talked about like the privileges that your family had. And there are also, I'm assuming, resources built into this for people who are at disadvantages from a lifestyle perspective on how to access places where they might be able to thrive and create the life that they want for themselves. And it's hard for me not to want to share that with everybody. And also from the perspective of, I've heard horror stories of people's college experiences and my husband is one of them. And I genuinely think that if he'd had a tool like this, that he, his experience and how he went on to have a career before becoming a stay-at-home dad and all of that stuff would have looked very different for him yeah, as well. Yeah. And all of that plays into our wellness. We talk about health and wellness here, but like everything that you live and breathe goes into how you feel either mentally, physically, or both being tied in together. So hopefully listeners can benefit from this. I know a lot of us have children who are eventually going to be in the same stage that your children were. And it's good to talk about all of these things. Mm -hmm. Before we do that, though, I did a little stalking, snooping research for preparing for the show. And I discovered a fun fact. We have both been to Harvard Business School. I actually just completed a certification for power and influence for good, which is what I'm trying to do here with this show. And I saw that yours was in marketing. And I know you mentioned you were part of the Whirlpool team that brought front loading washers from a 1% market share to now being in half the homes nationwide. I'd love for you to tell that story about how we all now have machines in our homes that are more energy and water efficient, thanks to you. Sure. Well, it, it, thanks to me and a lot of other people. So I, I will play. A, I played a role. I was the brand manager of the washer and dryer business at Whirlpool. So Whirlpool is the largest washer dryer manufacturer in the country. I started work there as the senior brand manager for the Whirlpool brand in 2000. 
And my boss said, okay, listen, we have a problem with this business. We, as the leader of the category, have let it devolve into generic top-loading white boxes that everyone pays 200, 300 bucks for, uh, and then they run them to death for 25 years, and then they get another one just like it. And people didn't care about it. And at the same time, as an appliance industry, you look around and say, well, people were spending tens of thousands of dollars redoing their kitchen with these glamorous restaurant-style products. And can we get some of that juice going in the laundry room? And he said, we have sort of two ideas, and they were just paragraph ideas. One was for a high-end top-loading machine, and the other was for a high-end front-loading machine. And he said, think about this and let me know your thoughts. So I went and run around and talked to some folks, and I thought more about it. And I said, if we just make another top-loading machine, but that it costs $1,000, who's going to buy that? If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? You can't... 5X the price and have it look the same. So let's do the one that looks different. And in 2000, we had some data that said people don't really care about energy efficiency, water efficiency. We just weren't there yet as a society. So we chose to do the front loaders. And it happened that Whirlpool was also the largest manufacturer of front loaders in Europe and in Latin America. And so we started traveling around looking at different markets and the technology. And it's actually a better way to wash your clothes. It's more gentle, more energy efficient, more water efficient. Um, the problem was they were just these tiny little machines that were hard to load and unload. And they took forever and the cycles were really long and everything. They weren't Americanized. So we set about the process of saying, okay, how can we turn those benefits into features that Americans will love? So, hey, it's America, right? We've got to make it bigger. we got to make that opening much bigger. We have to be able to let us do two loads at once instead of one. And let's make it look really cool. And so we did. We did some fascinating research around the country called ethnographic research, where you go into people's homes and you just watch them do their laundry. And you ask them a thousand questions about, hey, would this be easier? How did, why did you make that decision? And I remember being in one household, and I did some of this with my team. And I paired up marketing people like myself with engineers. So we got the product perspective and the market perspective. And we were in a home of a couple who were in their late 60s in the Seattle area. And she they owned one of these small European front loaders. And we watched her do all this. And her laundry was in an unfinished basement. It was semi-finished. And we're in one corner of the basement. The other end of the basement, her husband is sitting there in a barca lounger trying to watch TV and pretend he's not paying attention. And she's on her knees loading this little machine. And I said to her, would it make it easier if you could just raise this up a few feet so you didn't have to do this on your hands and knees? And she whips around and she points at her husband. She said, I've been telling that SOB for years to put this thing up on cinder blocks. And she didn't say SOB, but I did. And and so I said, well, don't put it on cinder blocks because it would probably fall over and might hurt you. But that was the genesis for an idea where you may actually, if you own one of these large front loaders, it may come on a pedestal now and be raised up a few feet. It came from that woman's basement. And so we developed this new product. We launched it under the Whirlpool brand and the Kenmore brand. At the time, Sears was a really big player in that industry, and Whirlpool made products for both brands. And so we launched those. We made them look great. We priced them really expensively, and they just took off like, like wildfire. The, the features, the benefits, we had people writing to us to say, oh my goodness, I've, I have taken the doors off my laundry room because I want everyone to see my washer and dryer. Can you imagine the paradigm shift that happens where people say, instead of hiding their laundry room... They would literally say to us, we just moved into our new house and I love to tour people around our new home. And I always start in the laundry room 
as nuts, right? You don't even aspire to that kind of outcome. But that was a, a really great team effort. We had the benefit of the company collectively, globally, understanding how to make the product. Then we just simply paid attention to American consumers and the needs. We de designed that product and it's just been, it's gone crazy ever since then. It's fascinating to talk about it. And also it made me think we tried to, we put our house on the market right before the beginning of the pandemic. And then we decided that we were going to stay, but we had feedback about our house that we were selling. And a couple of people said, the house is amazing. Like we, we'd renovated our kitchen and all these things, but it felt like a creepy dungeon in the laundry room. And the laundry room is just an unfinished space. And I'm like, it didn't occur to me at that time that people want this glamorous laundry room, like you're talking about it, literally created a paradigm where now I need to refinish my laundry room. So yeah, maybe well, I'm not you, your biggest fan. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. And I say all you're welcome fault. all at the same time. Because you, <laughs> look, here's the good news. If, if you go get one of these great big new washing machines and the matching dryer that goes with it, you will be much happier every time you do laundry. You might even coax your children and your husband to happily do laundry along. Oh, I, yeah, I yeah. don't do laundry. Oh, no. good. Everybody, good, good. everybody yeah. else well, this, does their laundry. Th this will be, the entire family will enjoy the benefits of this machine. And then you'll more than recoup your investment when you go to sell your house someday. <laughs> well, as fun as that is to explore, I know we do want to talk about from the perspective of college, how... True could help, but also just as someone who is very immersed in college, as hopefully listeners can see how you were very immersed in the development of the washing machines, now switching tracks to what this looks like for people as they're considering what to do as a post-secondary education. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, my experience was very different as an adult, both in paying for and choosing to attend and learn from college, like when I first, when I was 18, to when I decided to take courses with Harvard Business School, like my, the, how I approached learning and all of that was very mm -hmm. different. And mm -hmm. thinking about like how intentional that was, how I was ready for it and different aspects, it was also a virtual experience versus in-person experience. It reminded me of like when I went to college, that is actually when I first started experiencing panic attacks. And I had an eating disorder in high school, and it really got exacerbated in college. And generally, my health habits were abysmal. I lived on campus for one year, and I rarely slept when it was night. And I wasn't meals on a healthy basis, right? Like there was maybe binging, maybe one meal, there's no way to actually cook anything in my dorm room. So it came to a lot of processed foods. And I think that is probably still the case for a lot of college students, which is sad. And I decided that I wasn't my best self in a dorm. And so I actually moved myself off campus, got an apartment, got a full-time job and switched to taking night classes at the same university. 4.30 and 7.20, I still remember. <laughs> and I, so I worked full-time and I went to school full-time and that was a whole other kind of stress, but it was a much better fit for me because I was 
creating my own habits and rhythms that were easier for me. So I did end up graduating in four and a half years. There's no shame in not finishing in four years to whichever child took extra long for you. Shame is the exact opposite of what I'm feeling for you right now. With <laughs> The story you're describing is, is incredible because think about the maturity that you demonstrated to say, okay, I, I might've gotten off on the wrong track, but I figured out what's wrong. I'm not happy with it. I'm going to make positive changes. I'm going to move. I'm going to change my schedule. I'm going to get a job. Those are adult level A plus decision making on your part. So bravo on all that. That's, I think that's a great success story, honestly. Well, thanks. And it definitely did lead to my being much more successful in life because when you learn how to mm -hmm. manage a full-time job and a full-time college schedule, like how to work hard, how to prioritize and multitask and, and all that kind of stuff. And those were all skills that I had. So it was a better fit for me. It would not be a fit for everyone, but that is what I needed in order to be successful and graduate. And I think from that experience, also, given that my husband had horrific experiences in college, like I said, he got a scholarship to a school that was not a good fit for him. And he ended up being bullied and then getting huge social anxiety that was like debilitating. And so he couldn't attend classes and ended up flunking out, like coming from a scholarship to flunking out within two years. And he still has trauma around that whole experience. And so I think when I consider how important finding the right situation is for you when you are first leaving the house, like it is enormous in terms of how it would impact well-being. Like I can mm -hmm. see it in both my husband and myself. And so I'm wondering given you have also attended a variety of schools when I was on your LinkedIn, I was like, where haven't you gone? <laughs> Could you talk about the experience a little bit of actually being in different campuses? What was that like? And does that kind of help you when you're considering putting a tool together to help other people figure out what's right? Sure. It is here. Beauty Counter's annual Black Friday sale is here. And their limited edition holiday sets are a great way to give the gift of health, but they will sell out fast. Grab their brand new EWG Verified Clean Eau de Parfum set, skincare, body sets, and even great stocking stuffers like lip jellies or my personal favorite, the mood ring for your lips, the transformer conditioning Sheer Genius Lipstick. Yes, seriously, it is a unique color for each person. Literally transforms as you put it on your with your body temperature and pH. So cool and fun. Who doesn't want to have that for the holidays? All of these gift sets make great host rewards or teacher gifts or something for the person you literally cannot figure out what to buy. Like your mother-in-law. Imagine gifting her a luxurious body scrub and uh, illuminating body oil set. Like I'm telling you, these gifts are amazing. I give them personally every year because they are made with sustainable fair trade and skin nourishing ingredients. Beauty Counter is raising up beauty. It is a little luxury that makes a positive impact on our health for all of our collective communities through legislative change and giving back, as well as for the earth through sustainable manufacturing practices. And when you choose me as your consultant at checkout, I always give back 
This year, I will be gifting sets to local shelters and foster group homes so that those teens and adults without a home can feel extra special and give themselves some much needed self-care. And I'm also going to be including in the email confirmation thank you that you received from me an attachment that you can print out that can go with the gift so that the person understands why it's special a little more about the brand being sustainable and better for you and all of those things. So that way they know that you have gone above and beyond in thinking about them. And you're going to get a great deal with the Black Friday sale. So check it out at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth. We're getting safer products into the hands of everyone by giving back to people on the planet as a certified B Corp. You can shop there just like any other website. And when shopping at Beauty Counter, choose me, S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H, so I can send that thank you and donate on your behalf. So let me just for context for folks who haven't been uh, on my LinkedIn, which you're welcome to go check out. I attended two colleges, one university, one college. So I started at Georgetown. I spent two years at Georgetown. I was a good high school student. Georgetown's obviously a great school. I was a political science major. So you'd think I was exactly where I should be. I was working for my congressman a couple of days a week. So you'd think this was the epicenter of where Dave Hurwitz should be but I just didn't feel connected academically and socially to my school. And I felt like I was missing college. I was living off campus like you were by my sophomore year. It was campus housing, but it was off campus. I was working on the Hill a few days a week. I would rarely attend classes. I would skate by with bees. I didn't feel like I was learning. I was certainly not engaged with my classmates, with my professors. And I had the sense that I was just wasting this once in a lifetime opportunity of college. And I went to visit my older sister who was at a very small uh, liberal arts college outside of St. Louis called Principia College. And our mother had gone there. My sister was there. And I went and spent a long weekend just visiting my sister. And because it was a long weekend, I went to a, I was there over a few weekdays, two weekdays, Thursday, Friday. I went to a few classes just because otherwise I would be sitting around watching Days of Our Lives like I usually did. And that seemed wasteful. So I went to some classes that interested me. I never, I wasn't thinking, oh, I should transfer from Georgetown to Principia College, but I loved the classroom experience of this small liberal arts school where these classes met every day. There were 10 kids in the class. They're sitting in a circle. They're talking about what they read. They were engaged with each other. They were speaking to each other in a really healthy way. I just got lit up as a student again, which I hadn't been since high school. And so I flew back to DC thinking, my goodness, I... I actually think I would be happier in that environment. And so everybody I knew thought I was nuts, other than my mother, who was thrilled to see me go to her alma mater. But everybody thought I was crazy to leave this brand, this prestige of Georgetown, leave my job on Capitol Hill and go to the cornfields of, of Illinois. But I did. And I spent my last two years there and I loved it. And there's no doubt that within my business now, within my own personality now, is that sense of it doesn't matter what the name of your school is. It only matters if you feel a deep personal connection both in and out of your classroom in your school, whether that's a trade school, whether that is a college or university, you need to have that connection 
in order to really get the most out of it and and grow the most as an individual. And I really honestly believe that. And so when we set about saying, okay, if if we think we can have a positive impact and change the way people find and enroll and then succeed in college, what's the framework? And that framework is both academic and social, because if you've been to college, you know that actually from a sort of total time perspective, between two thirds and three quarters of your time is not spent in classrooms. It's spent outside of the classroom. It's working, it's partying, it's hanging out with your friends, it's eating, it's sleeping, it's all those other things that have nothing to do with the academic environment. And so much of the college admissions process is built around what's your GPA? What's your ACT or SAT score? Um, you're qualified, you're not qualified. It's not unimportant, but it's not the whole story. So we hired industrial psychologists and built a quiz, just a 10-minute quiz around academic and social preferences and the idea of psychological safety, which I'm not a psychologist, but the way they described it to me was, what are the set of conditions in the classroom and out of the classroom where you're going to come out of your shell and be the best version of yourself? Where are you going to feel comfortable to learn, to express yourself, to take risks, and feel supported and connected by both the students around you and the administration and teachers that you engage with. And that's the ideal solution. And so it occurred to me that the best measure of those things are the people that have actually been there, right? They are the graduates and the current students of those schools who have the best sense for what the academic and social culture of their school is. And that took me back to my Spotify and Yelp example from a minute ago, where that's what they do. They say, hey, Stacy's listened to these 10 songs and she gave them a thumbs up or she listened all the way through. And so we know she likes those and she didn't like these 10 songs. So there are other listeners, millions of listeners on our platform. Let's find the ones who like what Stacy likes, who dislike what Stacy likes, and let's throw the next song on her playlist to be one that those other people already like. That's what Truve is all about. It says, if there are people who've been in classrooms that like the things that you like, and, and I don't mean in, the, in a sort of superficial way, but that I learn best, for example, by engaging with others and having a really open, healthy dialogue and having really disparate kind of other perspectives that I hear and say, wow, I never would have thought of that. And I love that stimulus of that diversity. And those types of people can come from any type of background, anywhere in the world, any religion, any gender, any anything. Um, in fact, it doesn't work if everyone's background is exactly like mine. And so that's the kind of environment that I'm looking for, where I thrive as a student and also as a community member. And so I can find that pattern of preference in the alumni of any school and then make that comparison to any student who's thinking of going to that school to say, here's a good match, not prescriptively to say, David, you must go to the school now, but rather, hey, you're starting the process. You're starting your search. Here are 10 schools that you're probably going to get turned on in and out of the classroom when you start to learn about them. So go talk to them. Have, take a virtual tour. Go on Instagram and, and start to engage with some of the students at that school. You're going to find these are your people. And so that's really the basis of what we're trying to do is help people find their people, not again, not at a personality level or not at a similarity of background, but a similarity of preference for how we engage with each other in and out of the classroom.
It makes a lot of sense to me. I think where I get hung up as a mom, right? Like when I think about my experience, my husband's experience and a tool that would have been so helpful, I actually just happened to be at a school that had a lot of commuters. So uh, I lucked into being in an environment that was adept at people who were working and that helped me. My husband did not have the same kind of fortune that I had. Mm -hmm. But when I think about, okay, now how do I set my children up for success? Only one of mine is sure that he wants a traditional university experience. And we're already 90% sure that we know the school that he wants to go to. And it's just fascinating how like, he's like, yep, this is what I want to do. And this is where I want to go. And I think it would be important to compare, like, is this really as good of the fit as you think it would be like your GW experience? But for all of my other children, like I am the first person in my family to graduate with a college degree. And so it both confuses me as well as makes total sense that my children, all of them wouldn't necessarily want to go to college. So for example, my oldest already has graduated. He thought he wanted to go to community college, went, was like, nope, this isn't for me, is now considering going to culinary school and is just like working while he figures that out. And I think that there would be a lot of parents I feel like even there is judgment when I tell people like, this is what he's doing. And I'm like, for me, there is so much student debt and so much failure. And when a failure, I don't mean like the person failed. Like the perception is if you go to college and you don't finish, then you are a failure. And I'm using like quotation marks when I say Mm -hmm. that, but there is a huge percentage of people that start college and don't finish. And why, if he already knows that it's not right for him, would I push him into that? Especially when there are not enough people to fill the jobs that don't require college degrees. And we're talking about technical certifications and vocational schools, but also like he wants to be a chef and he wants to go to culinary school. Like he doesn't need a college degree to do that if that's what he really wants to do. And so when I think about the impact that the current environment has on the future of college, I wonder if it really is the future, right? If like Mm -hmm. universities and community colleges are going to be seeing either a decline in attendance or they're going to need to change their approach to make it more accessible because it's re I feel like it's reached a tipping point that our young people are having to choose like, no, this is not worth how much it costs or how much of my time to go forward. Yeah. Have you seen some of that in the work that you do? Yeah, without bogging your listeners down with statistics, if you look system-wide at the number of undergraduates enrolled in U.S. colleges and universities, that number has declined every year for 10 years. So the problem that you just highlighted is very real, right? The, The number of students going to college is going down. And that's not true in every segment, but it's system-wide is true. And roughly, or not roughly, but 35% 
of all those students who start college never finish, right? So the six-year graduation rate is about 65% nationally. And essentially 50%, half of all students will drop out or transfer from their first enrolled school. So where you go first is a coin toss, a literal coin toss as to whether you will stay. And that's that idea of how can we help students to succeed and get out of college or get out of their training program and get on to the career that they want. That's the mission that we are on. It sounds very much like I've started a business that helps people get into college. Getting into college is not the problem at the national level. The average acceptance rate is about 75%. Unfortunately, you already mentioned Harvard once. Harvard's got a 3% acceptance rate, which means they have a 97% rejection rate. And there are about 20 schools in our country that dominate 80 to 90% of the stories we talk about for college. And so everyone thinks the problem with college in America is getting in. It's not. It'll always be hard to get into America's elite colleges and universities. Okay. They represent about 3% of the 4,000 colleges and universities available to our students. And so the real issue isn't getting into school. It's picking the right one where you can get out. And so that's really the focus that we're trying to do is to help people to find the passion and then connect with the people that define the place where they're most likely to find success. Because as you've articulated so beautifully, life's going to happen. You're going to run into challenges uh, medically, socially, financially, academically. Um, and that's part of this journey as a young adult from 18 to 22, 23 years old. There's a maturation that's just going to have to happen, whether that happens um, in trade school, on the job, in your parents' basements, in college. That's okay. That's as it's meant to be. And putting people in the place where they're most likely to actually healthily grow through that process is, I think, all of our ambition. And it's what we'd like to do. And like I said earlier, we have to start somewhere. So we've started from a matching perspective with about 4,000 colleges and universities, two and four year, public and private, are on our database today. We're actively looking for trade schools to add to that, that are vocational specific kind of programs. Because I, like you, I you're absolutely right when you say that there is this, oh, they failed. Or, oh, your daughter wants to go to trade school. She wants to learn to be a hairdresser. Oh, I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. Imagine if she's passionate about that. Imagine the possibility for she has a really healthy life and she has this great work-life balance and she meets wonderful people and she helps people every day. And why isn't that celebrated? I don't get it. But one problem at a time. So we start with how can we help people to find that passion and those in their people? And that's the phrase I hear from students all the time. I just want to find my people. And so that's why we give people a what we call a learning culture fit score and a social culture fit score. So how likely are you to find your people in and out of the classroom and then let them start their journey of discovery where they are on the websites, they might be visiting the campus, they might take the virtual tour, and they're reinforcing or learning, yeah, this is a great fit or not a great fit. But that's, I think, the process that makes the most sense so they can find their place. I think it's ironic that my hairdresser, one of our first sessions, told me that because I asked her how, you know, how she came to do what she does. Um, 
has a four-year degree that she's still paying student loans on and has a lot of resentment about. And that after she finished, because it was mandatory by her parents, um, she then went on to hairdresser school and now loves what she does. And my brother has a very similar story in that he did not want to go to college, but was told that he needed to and now doesn't do anything with his degree, which then his parents are frustrated by. And I'm like, yeah. Or as a parent, I could just choose to like listen to the child that I've raised to be empowered and independent and tell me what they want and need and let them choose. And I genuinely don't think that most children want to stay in their parents' basements for the rest of their life. Nope, like nope. they will eventually figure out what is next. And it's hard when you're 17. I remember I also went to a Northern Virginia school, not GW, but I went to Mason, which is Mm -hmm. also in the area for poli sci. And I very quickly decided poli sci was not for me either. Right. And so it's, it's like, I chose a school because of the thing that I thought that I wanted to do. And then I realized once I started learning more about that thing, no, that is not how I want to spend my time. My perception of what it was, is not what it is. And now I'm going to change course. And I feel like the more that we can help people figure those things out before they're on a path that's more difficult to get off, mm-hmm. it feels like it will set them up for a better life long term. And sure. our health is very much affected by that. I do want to say one of the interesting statistics. I love that you knew so many off the top of your head. I'm a geek for data. But one of the ones that I found that was super fascinating was that the increase of gender divide has been huge in the college space since Title IX. So the statistic that I found said that in 1972, like right when Title IX was enacted, there was a 12-point spread with more identifying males than females being in college. And now gosh, how many years later? Almost 50 years later. That's quick math for me. But there is a 14 point divide in the opposite direction. Yeah. And it's postulated from what I was reading on interesting Brookings article that it's driven by like women or people who identify as women attempting to close the pay gap and of occupational segregation. So where you listed vocational jobs or trade jobs like haircutting, which would be mostly feminine, jobs like construction or carpentry, ones that have significant income and stability and competitive pay would not feel like a someone who identified female would not feel comfortable in that occupation. Right. right. So I think it's fascinating to see that over that time that there's this huge divide and makes me wonder like what's it going to look like? in the future. I guess the question that I then have is like, what benefits are you seeing from people who use Truve, use a tool to match with a better fitting university in terms of are the statistics from the general public versus utilizing something like Truve, are they improved? Yeah. It honestly, it's too early to tell in our developmental history. So we really first rolled in the market in 2022 for those who enrolled in 2023. And so we don't have the data. All of our partners, the colleges and universities we're working with right now have agreed to share data with us about 
the journey that those students are going to have and that the students who came to them through Truve, are they progressing? Are they staying and moving from freshman to sophomore to junior, graduating, and then ultimately remaining engaged with the university for a lifetime? Are they're going to share that data? Because that's, if I, it's a big picture vision. If you think about what college and university is today or will be into the future, it's very different than the one that that I grew up with, where it's, oh, well, those are discrete campuses. You go there for four years, you get one degree, and then you wear the sweatshirts around for the rest of your life. And they call you every year and ask you for money, right? That's college, right? And I think that's changed appreciably. That model doesn't work. As we just talked about, a third of students never finish. Half of students change schools at least once. There's $1.7 trillion worth of cumulative debt, higher education debt out there that some 50 million Americans have dropped out of school, out of college, have debt and no degree. So they're making payments on a job that they're only qualified for without a college degree. And so it's choking our economy. And I really see higher education hopefully adapting to say, we can learn online. You talked about the, on, the, the online degree that, you know, the certification you received from Harvard. There are wonderful ways where we can go in and retrain um, or upskill for our current job, find a new career, learn about cryptocurrency, what's going on in Ukraine, all this stuff where we have to keep learning in this modern high-paced society. That's the role of higher education. And, and my pitch to schools is, don't you want to find the people and they can't see you, your listeners can't see you, but you're sitting there in your George Mason sweatshirt that you have some affinity for that school, right? You're still years later saying, and I apologize, I can't remember your mascot. It's like some dude, like a colonial dude. (laughs) Yeah, you're colonial, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, I think finding the people that say, yeah, that's my association. That's where I go to for my education. And so that as I continue to grow as a student throughout the rest of my life, my first thought is to default back to where my people get education. This is where I'm connected. And so finding that connection and establishing it from the front end is the opportunity to transform the higher education business model and free schools up from, we're in the business of selling four-year residential degrees and then chasing you for money for nothing for the rest of your natural life, to how can we help? How can we help share education with you? And how have you returned value to us as a learner for the next 70 years. And isn't that a more productive model? And so that's what, from a business perspective, what the promise is of true for higher education. But for students, it's how can we take the pain out of this transition and help you to feel secure that when you do hit those roadblocks and those bumps that happen, that you feel connected to the people around you who are going to help you to get through that. The breakup, the failed exam, the illness at home, whatever it might be, There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, and there's probably some more statistical data that I just haven't seen, that would say you are much more likely to stick it out if you have that level of connection. And my own personal journey, I just didn't feel I had that connection, and I sought it elsewhere. And it sounds like you you stayed at the same school, but you changed programs, and you changed your environment around you in order to find that sense of security so that you could be successful ultimately at the school. Yeah, I agree. So I, I'm going to wrap with a question I always ask people, and I'm curious to hear what your answer will be, which is that I always like to leave listeners with something 
positive or actionable that they can take forward to either be of service to others or to work on themselves. And given that we're talking about mostly our children, right? I'm sure that there are six listeners who are potential college students, <laughs> but my my children at least and their friends who listen to the show. So from that perspective, what can we do? I know checking out Truth is top of your list and listeners, you can do that at truth.me and all of the socials are also at t-r-o-v-e.me. What, what else in your experience as a father in creating this tool, do you think that we could do to prepare ourselves and be set up for success? I would say let them fail. We all want to hover. We all want to cushion the blow. We want to do for our children. I know some amazing parents who drive me nuts just personally when I see them helicopter and do everything for their children. And I just, I, I, I don't say anything because it's not my place, but I'm a big fan of learning through experience. And if you deprive your student of the experience of success and failure, um, they are not going to learn how to succeed. And that I always try to ask questions and then let them make their decisions. And then they know that I support them. I may not agree with them, but I will absolutely support them and try to make their decision successful. And I'll be here if it's not. And that when they are successful, we celebrate and say, hey, I just want just take a second and, and recognize what you just did. I had one daughter who went through four years of the same school. I had one daughter who went to two years of one school and two years of another school. I went, I had a son who went through five years of one school and had some, they all had challenges. And we always try to take a minute, pause and say, hey, you know what? Look what you just did. And you now know that if that comes up again, when that comes up again, you can do it. And if I, as a parent, had interceded and done it for them, they wouldn't know that. So give them some room, let them succeed, recognize the success, let them fail, be there to help, but that there is learning and growth in all of the journey and it's theirs. I am a big fan of that. I think of it as resilience, thanks to Brene Brown. I don't know mm -hmm. if you read sure. Atlas of the Heart, but she talks about resilience pretty specifically as parents needing to let our children experience those things and to not step in because it helps them develop into who they are. Not just like build character as a cliche, but really, as you're saying, learn that they can do these things and that you're there for them, but that they are capable themselves. So I'm a, I, just I love one, that answer. One, one quick example of that. My now 28 year old daughter about a year ago called me up. She said, Oh my God, dad, I just realized that she had had a fender bender back when she was I don't know, 17. And it, it was $2,000 worth of damage. It drained her entire savings account. And I made her pay for the entire thing. And I think she hated me for it. She was angry. She And she said, just out of the blue, it occurred to her that letting her work through that and cry and rage against my decision and that how unfair it all was, that was actually much harder for me than actually stepping in and paying the $2,000 and getting her back on the road that it was hard for the parent to sit and watch her suffer. 
and she was grateful for it. And it just, it, if your kids aren't 28 yet, they're going to come around and they're going to thank you for the opportunity to let them work it out. I also have sent my parents written letters and had the same conversation about like, oh, I realized that I was not the easiest child or different yeah, kinds yeah. of things. It's it's nice when I look forward to having a little bit of that. I have just a touch with my 18-year-old, but I know we'll get there eventually. So listeners, I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. As I mentioned, if you'd like to keep in touch with Dave, you can do so at truve.me and we'll put the link to the website in our show notes at realeverything.com, which is where you can also find links to some of the references that we talked about today. And don't forget that you can also get the show delivered to your inbox ad-free at patreon.com slash the whole view. It's also a really great way to support the show that we create and produce ourselves. And seriously, if you enjoyed the show, can you please leave a review saying so? It costs you nothing except just 30 seconds of your time. It makes a huge difference in my being able to continue to do this work. And if you don't already follow or subscribe to the podcast and whatever app you're using, take a second to do that as well. As always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thank you. And I'll be back again next week. Thank you, David. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you, Stacey. You as well.